Welcome to Episode 8 of Talking Higher Ed. I'm John Neal, President of GenEd Consulting. Today's guest is Stacy Garrett Koju, founding member of the law firm Bone McAllister Norton, who has served as legal counsel for several higher education institutions and has also served as vice president for online for one client. Stacy combines her extensive legal expertise with a practical understanding of university boards and the challenges they face. With thanks to producer and engineer Grant Neal, we hope you enjoy this episode of Talking Higher Ed. Stacy, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I always say your office has the greatest view in Nashville. So thanks, John. <laughs> it's it does. the, the million-dollar view here of downtown Nashville, and um, this will be a different. Uh, slant for us, which uh, I really love. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do with the podcast is give folks uh, a taste of different aspects of higher ed. And um, your role, both with the legal aspect of higher ed, but also your experience in working with boards and advising boards and all of that is a really interesting piece. And and if we have enough time at the end, I may even put you on the spot and have you talk about your experience stepping into the day-to-day work, operational work within a university, having already been sort of at the strategic uh, legal side. So sure. uh, if you would talk a little bit about, so law school, you prepare for a legal career, what led you, a lot of our listeners are fascinated by career trajectories. So wh- where where were the decision points that led you ultimately to connect with higher ed from a legal standpoint? Sure. Well, uh, mine is kind of a funny story, and I like to tell it because I um, went to Tulane Law School and um, was never, ever, ever going to do any type of business or corporate law. And so, in fact, I didn't take corporations in law school. I decided I was going to, you know, fight for uh, environmental advocacy and um, never, uh, having grown up in Nashville, thought I'd never return to Nashville. But uh, as things happened, I went to the exit interview and received uh, my... (laughs) my kind of exit interview, financial aid information, and realized I, re- I needed a real job. Uh, <laughs> and the first job I landed happened to be doing business law um, in Nashville. So, uh, you know, never is not a good word. But uh, <laughs> Be careful what you say. Be very careful <laughs> what you say. But uh, so I started off doing kind of general corporate work and um, a little bit of real estate, a little bit of uh you know, financial transactions. And uh, I really had a circuitous route to today. I went from a small firm uh, to working in-house for a corporation uh, for several years and then went to work as chief of staff for um, for U.S., um, well, for congressmen. And uh, then landed uh, in a law firm, which is really backwards of the way things are typically done. But... Um, when I came into the law firm, I was approached um, 
you know, probably this was maybe 13 or 14 years into practice, I was approached by a university who was look who uh, was looking to replace their counsel and had been referred to our firm and um, wanted to interview me to handle really kind of their day-to-day -day affairs. And uh, just over time, as I did their day-to-day -day affairs and their trust grew in me, they began to uh, the, you know, really the board hired me and the board then began to uh, rely on me more and more uh, over the years as, uh, you know, things changed at the university and they faced various challenges and crises and questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that experience really took me um, into kind of, um, into kind of a very uh, in-depth, um, or I guess very deep experience with boards and governance. But not only that, I also uh, represent a lot of nonprofits um, and work with their boards. And the issues are, you know, often the same, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're in higher ed or in the nonprofit realm. Um, and of course, I also have a lot of corporate clients too. Mm. So, so uh, as you've worked with, and I know you've, you've served as counsel now for more than one uh, higher ed institution, um, what are some of the common themes that you interact with uh, when, when you're advising boards of universities or colleges? What, what are some of the common things you run into? I, I tell folks all the time as a consultant, while I'm trying to keep my ears open and my perspective, you know, attuned to the situation, that the reality is when I go into a college or university, a whole bunch of what I'm hearing is really common mm -hmm. uh, across clients. That's right. And what jumps out sometimes are the handful of unique things. Maybe it's the 80-20 rule. I don't know. But um, start with so, sort of those common things. If if you were called tomorrow by a university and they said, come work with our board for a little while, what are some of those common themes that you've run into about um, uh, common challenges, best uh, practices that you're, you're always circling back to? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest ones, uh, because I think most board members really... Uh, are eager to discharge their responsibility to the university. They're eager to um, they're eager to see the university kind of progress and to look um, to look towards the future. But you know, one of the most common issues relates to um, really whether so what constitutes discharging one's fiduciary. Uh, responsibilities versus overreaching. And um, that's that's a big issue. It varies from institution to institution and kind of what that looks like, mm -hmm. but the threat is the same. Yeah. So, so one is kind of what exactly is my role? Um, two is what is my, so two is then once I understand my role, how do I discharge that, that responsibility? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, three is, um, what happens when we have, I guess, for lack of better words, a rogue board member or board members? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that question is really posed both from the administrative side and from, you know, the board side. So that's one issue. And the other issue then relates to um, 
The other issues kind of relate to composition. You often see challenges when you have boards, um, you know, especially in a smaller institution in a smaller city where you have uh, lack of board term limits. And so you don't have changeover in boards. And so the question comes into how can I evolve? Mm-hmm. Um, or how can I, you know, how can I have greater impact with fundraising when we have the same group of people? And is that necessarily a bad thing? So mm-hmm. that question comes up a lot too. Um, and then, you know, it is the last time that institutions have looked at their bylaws because general is good, but general is very unhelpful when a crisis occurs, yeah. and crises do happen. Mm-hmm. So um, those tend to be some of your more common themes. So help me, I'm, I'm thinking of this from two different sides. One is there are a number of us, uh, again, I hate to always personalize everything, but I find that sometimes my experience, I hear other people struggle with it. Some of us who have been in higher ed for a number of years, we're now getting enough gray hair and you know years of experience that we're being approached, uh, especially as we're transitioning into maybe semi-retirement or retirement, mm-hmm. to go from being higher ed leaders to being board members. And so I, I have folks asking, what's the profile of a good, productive board member? And so when you're thinking about how would you describe somebody that at the end of the day you would go, okay, that's a winner for us. That's somebody that is going to be contributing, not overreaching, or the other extreme, which are the board members that show up and take up space, but really don't do much. So um, the the reason I ask that too is if I'm a president or a provost or a chancellor and I'm thinking about how do I express to this prospective board member when they say, what do you want out of me? What is it? And of course, private higher ed, most of the time it's, we want you to write a big check, but it is a whole lot more than that. So when you think about the sort of um, Maybe ideal is the wrong word, but when you think about the kind of board member that you would say that's a good fit, what are, what are the characteristics? Well, you know, you raise an interesting point that's really kind of a um, really kind of one of my new uh, talking points, and that's um, that is that as you know, sources of funding have dried up. You know, big sources of funding have dried up, and or are you know, um, I guess, competed for um, increasingly by more and more of the same types of institutions, funds become hard. So organizations, not only higher ed, but higher ed, um, look towards their board members as kind of their their fundraisers or Mm -hmm. their, really their donors, right, source of funding. And so it's more from having, you know, 100% board participation in, um, and fundraising because that's what people like to see to I expect you know you John to be one of my biggest donors mm-hmm. and I you know I find it somewhat disconcerting to start from that premise because what you've essentially done is ruled out every good characteristic of a board member and looked at the bottom line of a paycheck mm-hmm. um, and there are board members who may not be able to, to deliver a paycheck 
or the paycheck that's expected of them who can lend themselves to the jobs of the board of trustees of an institution better than the person that can write a check. So, I mean, it's very um, blindsided or very closed-minded to look at your board as your source of funding, hmm. right? Yeah. I think they ought to be contributed. They ought to contribute, but they ought not to be something you look at as like your big source of funding. So erasing that, I think it's a mistake to start off or to ask anyone to join a board without really having a meaningful um, review of kind of your knowledge, skills, and abilities that you have on board and that you look at your mission statement, you look at kind of your master plan, and you decide what do we really need at the institution because it may be what you're lacking is not, you know, you everyone lacks a paycheck, but it may be, you know, we really need some support behind our um, placement opportunities. I'm just picking something. Mm-hmm. Placement opportunities are going to do a lot towards helping our students, uh, to helping us to recruit students. And so you may look at board members from opportunity, you know, so, you know, you then take that rather than just the paycheck as the thing you're looking at when you evaluate a board member, this person could help us Mm -hmm. with, you know, some really key internships for our students. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're getting a lot out of that person, even if it's not the biggest check. Um, it may be that we really need help with our IT infrastructure, and this person is able to help us with experience and funding for that particular mm-hmm. you know, issue, although John himself may not be the one that writes that big check. He's still very key in doing that. Yeah. And so I have seen boards look, um, you, know, mist- you know, I think mistakenly, at just the paycheck that the individual can give and not really strategically in terms of what needs to be done. And in doing so, they're not really doing things that help their institution progress. Yeah, I love that notion that um, I used to say that people who are willing to open their Rolodex, Mm -hmm. their influence, or their expertise often can be as important or more important than just writing a big check, and that's the sum total of their participation, right? That's right. Wow. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, and it's okay for you to say, you know, there are things you can't talk about. Okay. But certainly one of the highest visibility projects that you've done vis-a-vis higher ed is the whole thing with Fisk and the George O'Keefe collection. And, you know, I'm not wanting to air dirty laundry or, you know, expose anything that's confidential. But I do think the underlying issue there, I mean, pick up the paper practically any day, and there are these uh, predictions that half of all universities are going to go out of business in Mm -hmm. the next X number of years, right? And so here you're working with an institution, um, and they have um, a a world-class kind of resource available, and yet, um, and those of us who've worked in development, we understand the notion of donor direction and donor rules and that sort of thing. And I just think for the 
listeners that that would be a really whatever it is about that lesson you you, you don't have to get into the um, minute details but i i think that's a really interesting perspective relative to the role of a board the fiduciary responsibility there and more importantly your role as counsel to them where you were sort of in a really interesting hub there for all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, here's what I will say about the way that a board should operate. Um, that at the time was a board that was very cohesive with people who had expertise in a myriad of areas, um, whether it be finance, banking, higher ed, they had, um, just an incredible wealth of experience and knowledge and ability that went into um, understanding. You know, so many people misunderstood or had a visceral reaction to that case mistakenly, I think. Um, And it was that how could you take this wonderful piece of art and monetize it, Mm -hmm. right? And they had a visceral reaction to not doing that. And in some respects, I suggest even paternalistic Right to suggest that you would know better than that institution what its priorities are, that the board hadn't explored every other opportunity, and that they hadn't picked or selected an opportunity that really um, kept in line with donor intent and allowed the university to have um, to have um, even greater support through the through the collection. But, you know, starting back, um, there's so many different kind of layers of that. But just let's start it back from a board angle. I mean, they they had been very cohesive in understanding where they were um, financially, what their prospects were. They had analyzed their past, um, you know, past practices, past actions, and determined, you know, we can't keep playing the same card and get a different result. Uh, and we are where we are, um, and here are the things we have before us um, that we can utilize. Um, I think they also understood their primary mission, and that's what the things that the people who have this visceral you know, reaction to art, maybe universities shouldn't hold art, um, mis- mistake. I mean, they understood the importance of art as one of the most you know, critical ways to educate young people and, you know, really anybody. Uh, But they also understood that their mission was as an institution of higher ed at the end of the day and that they had to, you know, their actions had to support the ultimate mission of the university. Um, You know, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, they selected something that allowed them, you know, people got caught up in the monetizing of art, but it really was a sharing of the art the university still has the art. They still own the artwork. They still have it there. Every class um, that enters Fisk University is able to see the art and experience the art and have a richness of experience because um, that art is now being preserved um, and and and, um, and its history is being enhanced with an institution that's um, just phenomenal. But I, I think what you saw at work there was the, uh, was the perfect example of cohesive board mm. understanding and action. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for letting me put you on the spot because I do I do think it's it's a really interesting piece, you know, myself having been at a position where people will call and say I I want to give this to the university. Mm-hmm. It it's something of value. And I think your comment is is really um spot on where in the early days I thought in my early days in higher ed, I thought they were giving us something so that we could monetize it. But often they were giving it to us because it did have that visceral value. It was almost eternal for them. And they they wanted it to have a place of prominence in an important place like a university. It wasn't just... Um, this is the best way I can give money to the university is to give something to you. And people do that. But you have digging down, drilling down about perceptions, motivations, mm-hmm. all of those um, and expectations. I, and, and I do think one of the neatest things about that case was really kind of, as it played out, understanding different people's perceptions about um, about the the wealth that a university has that's you know, not cash, mm, right? Mm. And not just students and seats. Mm-hmm. And it is an understanding. And I, I really do think that it brought about this amazing understanding of the, of the wealth of the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think it was educational for board members and understanding the value, you know, that and really learning to value what their fiduciary obligations were to support the financial stability of an institution, but also weighing in, you're right, kind of those ethereal or um, those things that make uh, education complete. And they aren't really the things that are, you know, so often we talk about money, we talk about programs, but they really are, you know, they really are so much broader Hmm. um, and ethereal. Oh, it's great. Well, as I said, I'm sort of shifting gears here toward the end, um, which is um, for a period of time, you had an opportunity to step in having um, served as counsel Mm -hmm. for for institutions working with boards. That is the quintessential 30,000 foot level. And then all of a sudden, you're um, responsible for developing a more entrepreneurial unit, a different kind of modality, those kinds of things. Um, What did that period of time do for you relative to, well, how did the work in the trenches now inform your work now that you're um, back to the 30,000 foot level? Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question. So, you know, one of the things we, we didn't get into is, you know, when are you overreaching as a board member? Um, and, and so, you know, we can talk about that kind of on a um, philosophical or theoretical level at any day that it's really policy-based, right? Uh, and I could have said that any day, but to, to be hands-on and to understand how you translate day-to-day activities into something that the board should hear, right, from a policy perspective, um, I think gave me this unique opportunity to understand why things go wrong, how you somehow and sometimes can, you know, can involve the board outside of its uh, broad perspective by giving too many details about day-to-day operations, and they really are complicated. So, you know, 
translating kind of the importance of day-to-day ops in higher ed is, um, I, I think, for the people that are in the, you know, in the trenches doing that, it's very difficult for them to understand the view from the board and why it's difficult to translate that into something. Um, at the same time, I think sitting from the board perspective, it's very difficult to understand the resources that are needed, um, you know, the resources that are needed to make day-to-day operations go on. And it's very easy at the board level to take kind of a broad pen and just look at the budget and, and readjust without having a fundamental understanding of how that really impacts kind of the quality of the day-to-day life there. And I, you know, and I, I feel it and sense it so easily now so that you're, you know, I may be in a board meeting listening to reports and hearing board remarks, right, as right. they may approve a budget and they're really going into balancing the budget because that's important. But they never ask. I mean, one <laughs> of the questions that never gets asked that, you know, should be asked is, but how does this, in doing this, do you feel comfortable that you're delivering kind of the quality mm-hmm. programs? You know, how, you know, by cutting our budget, how are we impacting that? What are you going to do to address that? Right. Um, so more of those kind of in-depth questions. But it's it's amazing that it never really gets translated at the top what it's like to have no resources at the bottom. You know, so when you're when you're challenged at the bot, you know, on the operational level with developing new programs, it's very difficult when, you know, there's no money there. Mm-hmm. Um, and theoretically understanding that is very different than having the responsibility for making that happen. And I, and I see that on so many levels now. Yeah. I, uh, I, I do believe, and this is across higher ed today that high level of interest, drive, even a sense of urgency about being nimble and responsive and developing new and paring down old and doing all of that. But it happens in a zero-sum game. Yeah. You know, we, we, can't, we, we can't do another, we, we can't do an initial public offering. We can't go find additional investors to create startup capital to do something and we can't run for an extended period of time in a deficit situation and exist right and so finding i i uh, i agree with you so much i find so many folks that come into board situations where they've never had to deal with if we do this there are other things that we can't Mm-hmm. do anymore that there are real trade-offs and and that just on on one level it seems like well that's just life right that's just life but um at a time when more people are expecting more out of higher education um to deliver and to be uh, nimble in that regard it really does that those are very down in the trenches, difficult conversations of we feel so confident in this, even though it's still prospective, that we're willing to not do this thing anymore and it won't affect our educational bottom line mm-hmm. as opposed to the financial. And I tell you, and let me add this, I tell you the other thing, um, just as you, you mentioned that, I mean, if anybody is out there and they ever report to boards, I tell you one thing that never gets touched on. People will talk about activities often, 
but rarely do they talk about student the student experience from a comprehensive you know bird's eye view um, when we're setting this budget what does this mean in terms of the the holistic student experience mm -hmm. because um, and I'm not sure if you understand what I mean by that but the student experience is more than just going to class and having the adequate resources for this professor to deliver this course the student experience is a holistic thing that's um, you know, and, and the board, the budget, the people that are there set a culture that drives that experience. And they're, and the board impacts it more than they know. Yeah. You know, um, and the people that are there doing the daily things have a duty and a responsibility to translate that back to the board, but it's difficult, mm -hmm. right? I find it very difficult for people to relay that. But the student experience often gets forgotten in those experiences. And instead, we get into kind of more granular things um, that don't really address the student experience, which is the real reason that a student selects an institution. It's about the student experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. In fact, I, I always thought that if we as a university or as a university board, um, um, leadership team could not articulate that macro view mm -hmm. to the board, we certainly aren't articulating it to the prospective student. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, and so I, I really think that's a, an excellent context. Stacy, you've been great Thanks. to let me have yeah. this time yeah. and wonderful insights. And I think you're your uh, experiences are so helpful for a lot of folks. So thank Let's you so much. Let's do it so again. Much. Let's do it again. Okay. <laughs>